Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Alan Turing is renowned the world over as a British mathematician and cryptographer who broke the Enigma Code. His advancements through his bomb machine were so important that they helped save millions of lives by hastening Allied victory in the Second World War. He is, simply put, a national hero, a pioneer who even has his face on the £50 note. But while Alan is famous for breaking the Enigma Code, his life, his career and the circumstances around his untimely death at the age of just 41 have been more difficult to decipher. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and today's episode is dedicated to the life and work of Alan Turing. To help us understand his personal history, his exact wartime role, his mistreatment and discrimination by the British legal system, the controversies around his death, and his lasting legacies in computation and AI, I've invited Professor Sue Black, OBE, onto the podcast. Sue is an award-winning computer scientist well-known for founding the high-profile campaign to save Bletchley Park, the secret wartime home of Allen and British code-breaking. In fact, you could say without Sue and her dedicated team, Bletchley Park might not exist today. And so it's through her decades of dedicated work on this history that we get to obtain more insight into a truly groundbreaking pioneer. Hi Sue, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Hi there, thanks very much for inviting me. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast, Sue, especially as we are dedicating this episode to the pioneering mathematician, computer scientist and codebreaker Alan Turing. We've covered the vital work at Bletchley in so many ways and many times on this podcast, but sadly never with a focus on Alan himself. So we are writing this wrong. And it's a pleasure to have you here because the chances are that if it wasn't for the work carried out by you and your excellent team, we wouldn't really be able to visit Bletchley today. Bletchley Park, the place where the German Enigma Code was broken by Alan and his team. As you say in your book, Imagine Britain Without a Bletchley Park. So tell us, what got you first involved in the site and in the history? Thanks. So I guess the first time I went to Bletchley Park was in 2003 and I went there for a meeting for the British Computer Society and was in the meeting all day and I didn't really know anything much about Bletchley Park on the way there. So I thought when the meeting finished, let's go for a walk around the site and it's a lovely site, 26 acres I now know, lots of different interesting buildings with interesting things inside them and ended up walking into one of the blocks, building which is a block, that's making me think of Lego bricks, it's not a Lego block. So one of the buildings and 
there were these guys in there that were tinkering away with this amazing feat of engineering, lots of kind of wires and cogs. And I was just like, what is that thing? What are they doing? So I went over to have a chat with them and asked them what they were doing. And it turned out that they were rebuilding Alan Turing's bomb machine. And uh, I didn't really know that much about Alan Turing at the time, or I'd never heard of the bomb machine, which is bomb with an E on the end. And so found out more about that and the amazing code breaking work done at Bletchley, the fact that these machines were used to industrialise the code breaking process. So we had a conversation about that and then I was asked why I was there. So I said, oh, I'm here representing this group of women in computing, BCS Women, so the British Computer Society Women's Network, which I set up in 1998. And John, the guy that I was chatting to, said, oh, did you know that more than 50% of the people that worked at Bletchley Park were women? And I was like, no, because I think in my head, for some reason, I thought it was about 50 old blokes wearing tweed jackets and smoking pipes, doing the Times crossword and a bit of code breaking on the side. So I have no idea where that came from. So, yeah, I was amazed. There's like more than 50% of the uh, people that worked at Bletchley Park were women. So I said, how many people worked here? And he said, more than 10,000. So I was like, what? More than 10,000 people worked here and more than 50% of them were women. And for one thing, I didn't know any women worked at Bletchley Park at all. And for another thing, I had no clue that it was 10,000 people and not 50 people. So I was completely blown away by that whole conversation. And at that time, so that on my first visit, I went away thinking, I've got to do something to raise the profile of the women that worked at Bletchley Park. Because I didn't even know there was one woman there, let alone eight. It turns out 8,000 women worked at Bletchley Park, roughly, in the outstations. So, yeah, I was completely blown away by that. I then thought we need to do something to capture the memories of the women who worked at Bletchley Park and managed over a couple of years to raise funds to run an oral history project to capture those memories where we interviewed I think 15 of the women some of them code breakers and then it was at the launch of that project in 2008 where I found out that Bletchley Park was having financial difficulties and the director at the time gave a talk at the launch of the of our oral history project and said that Bletchley Park were teetering on a financial knife edge and he was really worried that they were going to have to close and he said and if we close we'll never be able to open again because it would just be too difficult. I think about 80% of the staff were volunteers and uh, yeah so he just was a kind of a plea for help from him so I thought, that's not right. Like all those people worked there during the Second World War. I've got to do something about it. But I didn't really know what quite to do to start with. And then a few weeks after that, I was invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park, where for the first time I did a whole tour around the site with one of the veterans. So a group of us went around with one of the guys that worked there. And we were going past all these different like huts and buildings. And he was saying, in this hut here, this amazing code breaker who was 18 did all these incredible things and these just lovely, amazing, incredible stories about saving people's lives and just all sorts. It was just incredible. And so many young people as well, which I hadn't realised before. The, I think the youngest co-breaker was 16. So just amazing stories. And we got to the end of, of the tour and our guide said, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War Two by two years and at that time 11 million people a year were dying so potentially the work that was done there saved 22 million lives and I just thought this place can't close like I've got to do something about it. 
Wow. I mean, there's so many questions just to ask about this. First of all, it is astonishing to think that just 20 years ago, the bomb machine was sat in a hut somewhere that was largely dilapidating from from the sides and was being tinkered with and fixed. I mean, was this the first time that they'd... Were they just no, they were creating doing... it from nothing. Yeah, so on Churchill's orders at the end of the Second World War, all of the machines that were used to industrialise the code-breaking process were all broken up into pieces on Churchill's orders that had to be smaller than a human fist and buried so that no one could ever know... They were recreating it, like rebuilding it from scraps of blueprints and notes. So just that on its own, I think, was utterly incredible. They didn't have a working machine or even a bit of a machine to work from. It was all from drawings or stuff that was written down. That is absolutely crazy. I didn't know that in any way, yeah. shape or <laughs> it's form. It's completely crazy. It's completely crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and when it came to, to trying to record the oral histories with the women that had worked there, were they hesitant to reveal this history? I mean, like you say, Churchill orders that this history, the machine itself, is broken down to fist-sized pieces. Everyone has to keep silence. They've all signed away the right to talk about this. Were they hesitant to talk to you? That's a really good point because... As part of the campaign as well, we talked to so many veterans, probably hundreds, over the next few years. And lots of veterans just said, I signed the Official Secrets Act. I am never talking about what I did. That's it. Just don't ask me. I'm not going to tell you. And others were reasonably keen to share the stories of what they did. But of course, no one knew what anyone else was doing. So I think it's just such an incredible place and so many amazing stories that could just go on and on forever. (laughs) The interesting things that the veterans got up to. Yeah, so on the whole, the veterans were happy to talk to us, but still lots of people said that they weren't ever going to say anything about it. And I mean, the amazing thing is today we have so many books written by those veterans and historians who have interviewed those veterans and your books as well that help us to to really piece together this history. The saddest part, I guess, is that you never got to talk to, to Turing himself, who was found dead on the 8th of June 1954, having died the previous day from cyanide poisoning. Now, there are some who say that he committed suicide, but... He was found near a half-eaten apple, I believe, causing his mother to think he'd accidentally ingested cyanide from his fingers after a chemistry experiment. So there's there's lots of uncertainty surrounding his death. But, you know, I'm sure it would have been amazing for him to see his reputation rehabilitated and, and the place that he, well, cracked the Enigma code rehabilitated as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to lots of people over the years about Turing and what happened. And I think... No one really knows. And we'll probably never know, was it an accident or did he do it on purpose? But apparently he often had chemicals and stuff around the house and was doing chemistry experiments of all different sorts. It could have been an accident. It might not have been. We just don't know. Well, this kind of epitomises the life of Alan Turing because there are many stories that may well be myths. They may well be facts. And I mean, that goes for the film itself, which, you know, there are some facts in there. But I've also heard historians say that quite a lot of it is garbage. (laughs) So I know that our listeners will be very keen to hear the extent to which you think that it is garbage. And also some of the facts around Alan, whether or not they're true or false. So I don't know, maybe we could go through the top five facts about Alan and then you can give us a judgment on the extent to which they are true or false and tell us a bit of the broader history around them. Do you up for that? Sure, give it a go. (laughs) I'm always up for a challenge. (laughs) All right, let's go. Okay, so, well, let's start with Alan at a very young age. He's, He's born on the 23rd of June, 1912, in London, and it's said that from a very 
young age. His intelligence is just evident to everyone, including his teachers and, and the headmistress at his school, who reported, even at the age of nine, that he was a genius. I mean, I wish my headmistress had said that I was a genius at the age of nine. I mean, I don't think I barely write my name. But was his intelligence clear for everyone to see? I think even though I'm not quite old enough to have been there at the time, I'm sure I've read things that his mum's written. She wrote a book and I'm sure that it said in there, there were some stories about him just being very single-minded, I guess is the word I'm looking for, and not not thinking that you had to fit in with what was going on around him. And so there's examples of things like them. I think she went to visit him at school because he was at boarding school. And I think she went to visit him and they were having a picnic on the grass outside the school. So she was there to catch up with her son and see how he was. And she tells the story of him just being obsessed by looking at the daisies on the lawn and then talking about the sort of mathematics involved in how flowers grow and how they develop. So I just think that little thing, that little story on its own kind of shows you that I guess he wasn't a typical nine-year-old. No, I think you're right, yeah. Sitting there talking about the mathematics of flowers is fascinating. Perhaps not usually what a child would be doing there. They might be making daisy chains or just, you know, I don't know, eating ants Running or around, yeah. Okay, all right, yeah. You know, you, what you said is far more normal than what I just said and probably more revealing about my childhood. Either way, <laughs> we'll move on and we'll move through. Of course, he was an incredibly clever man. He went to Cambridge. He went to King's College, Cambridge. He was seen as being incredibly smart there. He did his PhD there. Interestingly for me, he joined the anti-war group at Cambridge. This was a time during the rise of Hitler. So how did he end up working at Bletchley? I think he was there right from pretty much the beginning in 1939. And um, I think, you know, a lot of the time the people that work there were tapped on the shoulder by someone at Oxford or Cambridge or another university and invited up there. But of course, it was all secret, so we don't know exactly what happened. But yeah, he was there... I think, from pretty much the beginning. Well, I guess this leads me into kind of my second major factor or myth about Alan, is that, you know, he's famous for cracking the Enigma code, but he also cracks so many other codes, and this is said to have dramatically shortened the war. I guess the first one here is, are we right in saying that cracking the Enigma code did dramatically shorten the war? I'm sure it did certainly shorten the war. Did it dramatically shorten it? And do we give Alan too much credit? Was it Alan Turing who cracked the Enigma code? So there were three Polish mathematicians who I think originally cracked the Enigma code. And I know that I think Turing went to meet up with them in Paris to talk to them about their work and ask them to share it with him because of the work that he was doing. And I think like Enigma was made like more and more complicated over time. So they'd cracked, I think, like a previous version. And so he had to do some work to crack the newest version. And he was also working with one of the other code breakers at Bletchley Park. So it wasn't just him on his own, I don't think. And also there were other code breakers at Bletchley Park like Bill Tutt who cracked other codes. Turing was obviously absolutely amazing and I'm glad that there's been such a big focus on Turing because it's brought so much more focus to everyone else that worked at Bletchley and the contributions at Bletchley. But then at the same time there were lots of other code breakers there all helping with the war effort. But yeah in its entirety the work that was done there was said to have shortened World War II by two years and at that time 
11 million people a year were dying. So potentially the work done there saved 22 million lives. Just crazy. 22 million lives. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It's hard to think of any other single team that had a greater impact in the Second World War. Him and his team in Hut 8 deciphering these military codes. But... I guess as soon as we talk about this, my mind is cast to the film and how everyone around him hated him and it was incredibly difficult to work on all of this. So I guess this moves me up to my next question, question three, which is how accurate is that film? How accurate is that depiction of Alan as being incredibly, you know, 
antisocial, difficult to work with, to the point that it almost hinders the project. Um, he's almost kicked out. Or Is that true? Is any of it true in the film? <laughs> no, most of it's not true. I was at a kind of like a pre-screening of the film and then I was on a panel afterwards when it came out. So I didn't know what was in it at all and sat through the film and I'd, I'd ran the campaign to save Bletchley for three years so I was very invested in it being like an accurate story but also very invested in it being a success because I wanted everyone to know what Turing had done and the code breakers and what happens at Bletchley Park and obviously for Bletchley Park to be better known and successful so yeah so I sat there during the film and I loved it and hated it at the same time I was very conflicted because it's obviously a good story. I think you won an Oscar for the script. So it's obviously a good story. But how true is it? I think not very true at all. And I ended up afterwards looking it up on some website and it said it was 43% accurate. And I guess that's probably about right, which is basically less than, obviously less than 50%. So it's more inaccurate than accurate. And Turing didn't. So the machine's called Christopher in the film. And it was actually called the bomb machine so it wasn't called Christopher and Alan Turing didn't actually build it it was a guy called Doc Keen and his team who built they were the engineers that built the bomb machine or Christopher and of course the thing that I really don't get with that film is there's obviously like you have to have a villain in films like this right so why couldn't Hitler be the villain because he's probably like one of the biggest villains of all time why did it have to be, I don't know, why make the head of Bletchley Park the bad guy? Because, of course, he was orchestrating everything that was going on at Bletchley Park with 10,000 people. Of course he wanted the codes to be broken, the machines to work. So just the whole thing about him kind of being vilified in the film or like being the evil head of Bletchley Park is terrible. And in fact, because over the years I've met so many veterans and I've met people who are related to veterans. And one of the guys that I got to know during the campaign who was really supportive is the grandson of the guy that ran Bletchley Park. And he shared after that, or one of his relatives did that. But that's awful for them because now people think, like his granddad was a hero running Bletchley Park, making sure all of that happened. And now people think he was an evil guy who was horrible to Turing. And it's, that's awful. That's awful. His grandfather gave this incredible contribution to the success of the Allies in the Second World War. And now from this film that's a global success, he's seen as the bad guy. I think we need a, a second film, a more historically, or, or a do. drama, like a, a series of kind of, I don't know, a, a six-part series where you can focus in on those figures and their lives and how each of them contributed to the war effort. Because when you focus in just one film, of course, you have to make it emotive. There has to be some sort of kind of element of a love story in there as well. I guess that's why they introduced the naming of the machine Christopher, because Alan Turing, of course, was a gay man. His first love was Christopher Morecambe. Yeah. You can see where they're pulling at the heartstrings there. But a film dictates the fact you have to almost focus on one person as a lead character. And Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, he's an, an amazing actor. Keira Knightley is, is fantastic in, in, in so many ways. But I just wonder if the story itself lends itself to a, a much broader series. And I, I'm going to push for it. Absolutely. Anyway. I would, yeah, I would love to see that. And also, I didn't mention how many people did I say worked at Bletchley Park? 8,000. How many, sorry, not people, how many women worked at Bletchley Park? 8,000. How many women were in the film? One. We should at least have a film about the women that worked at Bletchley Park, considering there were 8,000 of them and some of them code breakers as young as 18. It's just, and there are so many great stories about that they've 
things that they told me they got up to at Bletchley Park because think about it, it was 10,000 people, but most of them were definitely under 30 and loads of them under 25. So you can just imagine the sorts of things they might have got up to in their spare time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and also, we've had those who have been working with the veterans. We've had a couple of veterans from Bletchley onto the podcast talking about the fact that their parents oh, weren't cool. particularly happy with them going out there and, and being on their own. This wasn't the to-do thing <laughs> yeah. during this period of time. Yeah. And many of the women were from a, a middle-to-upper-class yeah. background, so it really wasn't the to-do thing at this period of time. So there's, there's so much still to investigate there. But we did mention Christopher. And I'm just wondering to the extent to which... You know, one of the things, one of the myths around Alan is that his his sexuality at a time when being gay was against the law held back his career and, and caused him to be shunned from society. Of course, he was chemically castrated and then he dies tragically in 1954 from cyanide poisoning, either by suicide or by accident. To what extent is this accurate that because of his sexuality he is shunned from the professional society and from really receiving the accolades that he should have done for his just incredibly groundbreaking work and and let's be honest we use that term groundbreaking all of the time this was most literally groundbreaking work yeah absolutely i've never heard i've spoken to i don't know say one to two hundred veterans about their time at bletchley park from being involved in the campaign and no one's ever mentioned anything about Turing's sexuality or any bad feeling towards him at all. And when you talk about what was it like there, everyone was so focused on the war effort. I just don't think that would have come into it at all. And I think I think in those times where, you know, it's like a, a major, like a really bad situation, can't think of the proper term for it, something like the Second World War, like just life or death every day, just awful times for lots of people. I think everyone focuses on making the right thing happen. They're not caught up in things which maybe might seem important outside of those times. Of course, the, the sad truth is, Sue, is that he, he was chemically castrated for being gay. Yeah. And I guess that, you know, after the war, this is something that in, instead of praising this man, and of course he's on Britain's £50 note yeah. today, instead he's forced to live in shame and to have chemicals pumped inside him that stop his very natural, normal compulsions. Yeah, absolutely. It's horrific. It's utterly horrific. He was prosecuted and had to choose between chemical castration or going to prison. It's barbaric. And his, his, lawyer, advised, his lawyer advised chemical castration. Yeah, it's just utterly, utterly horrific and barbaric. And, yeah, thank goodness it doesn't happen in the UK now. But, I mean, it, yeah... It's hard to find the words to even describe it because it's so awful. Perhaps a pertinent reminder of the consequences and implications of demonising someone's sexuality. Yeah, absolutely, I guess. absolutely. Well, in terms, so you were talking about people getting recognition for their contributions at Bletchley Park. I think, in general, most people weren't recognised at all. There was very little recognition for the code breakers, basically anyone involved, really. And there's kind of stories of because they couldn't then tell other people what they'd done either because it was so secret I think that's part of it but I think people in the sort of senior ranks knew a lot of what had been going on there and so could have done something but I think just because everything was kept so secret then no one wanted any publicity I think and there are lots of people that should have been OBEs, CBEs or given the recognition that they deserved but lots of people 
didn't get anything at all. And there's one story that I heard of one of the major code breakers, I'm afraid I can't remember which one, who kept everything secret that he'd done during the war. And then like several years later, his father was on his deathbed and son went to visit him and the father said to him, you've never amounted to much, like to this guy. And he still didn't even tell him that he was one of the major code breakers at Bletchley Park. So it's just such a different time from now can you imagine even just trying to keep Bletchley Park secret with social media and stuff like that we've all got so used to talking about everything and knowing what everyone's up to every five minutes I just find it's incredible that 10,000 people lived with the secrets of everything they knew for years and years and didn't tell us all and some of them had a really difficult times there and still didn't say anything about any of it. It is remarkable and it's a, a reminder of the stoic heroism, the silence and the suffering that continues after the war. You can't tell your families what happened. You can't say what you did. And I'm sure so many were shunned by their families, as you so brilliantly illustrate with those final moments with the Codebreaker's father. And it is great to see that this history is out there today. I'm not sure how much of a justice it is for Alan himself. But I guess this brings us to question number five. You know, there's so many legacies that we could attribute to, to Alan Turing, so much impact on the world today, from modern computing to many saying that he is the father of AI itself, whether or not that's an accolade you want in these disturbing AI times. Would you say that they are fair legacies to attribute to Alan, or are there other broader legacies that we need to talk about when we talk about Alan Turing and the work that was going on at Bletchley? Yeah, so I think just a legacy in so many different ways, and I think for me it's always about the people and the people stories, and the fact that Andrew Hodges wrote a book about Turing because he cared about his story and wanted people to know what an amazing person Alan Turing was. Thank goodness he wrote that book. I think that's really helped to shine a light on Turing, his situation, his sexuality, and given us a hero, which we might never have known, really, what happened there. So thank you to Andrew Hodges for giving us that description of Alan Turing and turning him into one of our modern-day heroes by writing the book, which The Imitation Game was very loosely based upon. <laughs> and his contribution, yeah, again, to computer science and AI, just like decades ahead of his time. And it's been wonderful to see, actually. I, I wrote a piece for The Telegraph about 10 or, don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, asking for Turing to be on the £10 note. And then that didn't happen. But then Turing ended up on the £50 note, which was wonderful. And uh, like John Graham Cumming, who started the campaign to get an apology for Turing. There have been lots of people over time who've really, where Turing's story has really resonated with them. And they've done something to make sure that he was recognised. That's not only given us a hero in Alan Turing, but also helped to shine a light on all of the heroes at Bletchley Park and their contribution over so many years to peace in our time. Well, Sue, thank you so much for your time today and for helping us dispel some of the myths, reinforce some of the facts around Alan Turing and the work undertaken at Bletchley. I know that I have learnt so much just from listening to you here today, but you have to tell us, where can we learn more? Where can we read more? Where can we read your book? Well, my book's called Saving Bletchley Park. <laughs> and I co-wrote it with my friend Steve Colgan, who's one of the QI elves. And I wrote the whole story of what we did in the campaign because, in fact, it was 
kind of Stephen Fry getting involved and using social media that made a big difference. So it's a good sort of story of social media's use for good. So, yeah, so Saving Bletchley Park is available for, I think, £4.31 on Kindle. <laughs> nice. That's an absolute bargain. Well, Sue, thank you so much for your time. We're going to get you back on the podcast just to talk about Saving Bletchley as well, I think. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.